This morning we are attempting to uncover the mystery of Christ-like love. In this study we're going to take advantage of two avenues of research. First, there's the raw description of the idea. Second, and much more challenging, is the human modeling of the idea. You see, it's one thing to, to, to think about the, the ideas and the concepts, thinking about how things are supposed to be. It's another thing completely to fulfill or to live out the behavior you promote. Today we'll see both the scriptural instruction and the playing out of a rather marvelous mystery. Let's start with Paul's instruction to the Christians in Colossae, uh, the raw description of what Christ-like love really is. Chapter 3, beginning at verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues, put on love which, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Since as members of the body, you were called to peace. All of you stress mongers and high capacity people, you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and psalms, hymns, spiritual songs or songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. And, and whatever you do, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Those six verses are the first part of the research. It's an explanation of the word of Christ-like love. Before you can begin to do something, there needs to be clarity about what the subject matter is. Describe it to me. Talk slow with large and slow pauses so I can drink in the ideas. The first part of revealing the mystery is to offer the words that define. We've done that through the text of Scripture. It's a good place to begin. The second part of our research will prove more challenging. It's taking that rather amazing description about the life of the believer and actually putting it into practice. Uh, the description that we've just read, is, is that the kind of thing people say about you? What do people say about you? In southwestern Minnesota, there's a small town called Redwood Falls. I've been there many times. My wife Paula has relatives in that small community. The local newspaper there is called the Gazette. And recently, in the obituary section of the paper, a death notice was entered for a woman named Kathleen Deemlo. I think that's the way you pronounce it. I'd like to read it to you. Kathleen Deemlo Schunk was born on March 19th of 1938, Joseph and Gertrude Schunk of Obasso. She married Dennis Deemlow at St. Anne's in Wabasso in 1957 and had two children, Gina and Jay. 
1962, she became pregnant by her husband's brother, Lyle Dimlo, and moved to California. She abandoned her children, Gina and Jay, who were then raised by her parents in Clements, Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Schunk. She passed away on May 31st in 2018 in Springfield and will now face judgment. She will not be missed by Gina and Jay, and they understand that this world is a better place without her. You might have seen that obituary. It went viral. I was not aware that an obituary could be used to get even with someone. Now we know. Revenge obituary. That's kind of a curious idea. You know, it's my guess that Kathleen would never have imagined that her name in life would be ridiculed in such a public manner. I guess you never know the places where your life leaves mark. Oh, Kathleen. Oh, Kathleen. Peek behind the obituary for just a moment. I'd like you to imagine with me the backstory lingering beneath those few sentences. Oh, I'm quite sure there's more to the story. On both sides, no doubt. Life decisions, mistake, the backstory. Selfishness, abandonment, poor choices, hurt feelings, perhaps things like hatred, resentment, bitterness, refusal to forgive. Oh, the backstory, it will be pretty juicy. Just because the trail you make is now somewhere behind you, doesn't mean that it disappears. Oh, Kathleen. Does your life have a backstory? A backstory that may someday surface. Or is your life fully consistent? Consistent enough that people observe that your backstory is well in line with your front story. I mean, there are things like, like character and integrity and principle. More, more specifically, the things Paul talked about in verse 12 and following. Uh, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, uh, being able to bear with one another, to actually forgive as the Lord forgave us, wrapped all together and knitted by the quality of love. Is that your backstory as well as your front story? Today I want you to know that I intend to preach from the backstory, because that's where the juicy stuff is. <laughs> For a period of nine weeks, we're listening in and learning from the Apostle Paul's message to Christians in a city called Colossae. Come to find out that church in Colossae has a backstory. At least one of its prominent members has a backstory. Maybe you already know this, and maybe this will be brand new to you. I'm not sure. But the Colossian letter that we've been studying needs to be read in tandem with another letter in the New Testament, this letter called Philemon. Let me see if I can offer some wider perspective. These are the writings of the New Testament, 27 of them in all. The Gospels start on the far left, and the words and message and ministry of Jesus. And on the far right, there's Revelation, it's the closer. In the middle of these documents are critically important, uh, the history of the church, the book of Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning of the church. And then there are all these letters that are the instruction of the church, many of them written by Paul, some by James, John, or Peter, others. I want to pull out that yellow section for just a moment to look at the Pauline corpus, the, the, the words that Paul has written to various people. You'll notice that the Church congregations in cities are often who Paul wrote to. 
There's Rome and Ephesus and Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica. But at the end of the line, there are some personal letters. Timothy and Titus, these are young leaders who are going to follow in Paul's footsteps to guide the church after Paul was gone. Those are letters filled with, with operations and functions and dynamics of how to lead the church. Some of them quite technical. But then at the very end, there's this, there's this one-page letter called Philemon. It's, it's not about operations. It is a personal letter about handling a specific situation in his backstory. Colossians and Philemon should really be read together. Uh, their letters written at the same time uh, by Paul while he was at Rome. It was sent back to be read by Christians in the church at Colossae, which happens to meet in the house of this man named Philemon. So, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae, wanted it to be read as guidance and direction among the members, but he also wrote a personal letter to Philemon. And the two letters were to be carried back from Rome to Colossae. Let me fill you in on the backstory of that letter. Philemon, it's, it's not a letter to a church. It's a letter to a man. About a man. Actually, it's a letter to a friend, from a friend, about a friend, who's the enemy of a friend, but this friend wants the two friends to be friends. Did you follow that? <laughs> Let me slow down. This is a letter to a friend from a friend, about a friend, who happens to be the enemy of a friend, but this friend wants the two friends to be friends. Are you with me now? It's a correspondence that attempts to heal a past. Paul is calling Christian people to live out the behavior of Christ-likeness. Christ-like love is more than a description. It is a real mystery in bringing out such amazing things into real life. Behind this letter, there is a troubled past between one-time enemies. On the one hand, there's the boss. On the other hand, there's the slave. On the one hand, there's the offended. On the other hand, the offender. On the one hand, there's the investigator. On the other side, there's the fugitive. Allow me to set the characters of the backstory melodrama. First, there's Paul in prison in Rome. He's there accompanied by Epaphras and Luke and Demas and others. Mark as well. The one to whom the letter is sent is Philemon. He's a leader in the church in Colossae. His wife is Apphia. He has an older son named Archippus, according to the early verses of Philemon. Philemon's a man of good reputation, public credibility, but somewhere in his yesterday, he came across the path of a man named Onesimus, who is the third character in the melodrama. Onesimus, he's a... He's a runaway slave. He will actually carry the letters from Rome along with a, a man named Tychicus. And at one time, a slave of Philemon, he ran away because of reasons that are uncertain to us. We could assume that maybe he stole some money or that he violated his master in some way, but it would only be a guess. For some reason, this slave ran away. Onesimus. He ran. Now, fugitive slaves are not a very respected part of any society, and so you know that life for Onesimus was anything but leisurely. On the run, always looking over your shoulder, ducking behind shrubbery, peeking out windows, sweating every time you approach a blind corner, not knowing who's going to be around the bend, living moment by moment with the aching paranoia that the next face you see might be your old master or perhaps an official or even a slave hunter. Who knows? His running 
Onesimus, his running. It takes him many places, but it takes him to Rome. Easier to hide in a big city, I suppose. Convenient to get mixed up in the metropolis, so Rome's a, a great place to lay low. But while in Rome, something unexpected happens to the man named Onesimus. He encounters Christianity. Maybe he heard Luke preaching, or it was Epaphras or Mark or someone. They were all accompanying Paul, who was carrying on the mission work while even Paul was in confinement. Whoever he met, they took Onesimus to meet Paul. And in that meeting, you find one of the most ironic confrontations in all of confinement. I believe it. You have to see the irony of this visit. Paul, in a physical prison, and yet he has never felt more free from bondage in all of his life. He is converting jailers and witnessing to Caesar's household. His mission work is thriving and development, developing. He is absolutely free to do what God wants him to do. On the other side, there's, there's Onesimus. He is physically free, but he has never felt more in prison. In this encounter, you, you kind of go cross, cross-eyed trying to figure out who, who's in and who's out. You're not really sure? And that irony leads or locates to, us, to the most poignant truth of this little letter. That which truly binds a man is not external, but internal. And likewise, that which truly frees a man is not the exterior, but it's what's going on inside. Could I help you feel that truth for a moment? When was the last time that you felt an electric current and a twinge of conscience, 110 volts of shocking self fault you have a memory close for you where you paced a late-night floor playing a game hide-and-seek with a midnight intruder named guilt? How long has it been since you, you really had a bellyache, but it had nothing to do with something you ate? It was given because of something you did. It made you sick. It was a number of years ago, but I could, it could just well have, as well have been yesterday because the picture remains vivid and I still sweat when I recall it. In the back room of a grocery store, crowded in amongst boxes and storage, located in a narrow aisle, there is a small boy named David. He stands there awaiting the arrival of a large man wearing a white apron. It's a bloody apron from his work in the butcher shop in the back of the store. It's a rather intimidating place, and the big man is a rather intimidating character, but then a lot of things can look quite ominous to a ten-year-old. If you listen real carefully, you can hear some whimpering. It's the ten-year-old. His lower lip is puckered, his upper lip is shiny, made shiny by a runny nose. He's trying to speak, but not, not having much success. Fluid speech and flagrant sobbing do not go very well together. When the large man with a long apron arrives, he has this look of distress on his face. He doesn't quite understand what's going on. Uh, the ten-year-old has, has invited the big man here to this private place for a reason. Uh, the ten-year-old just having a little hard time getting it out. Finally, the unintelligible becomes intelligible. And the big man with the long aprons suddenly understands that his store had been victimized by a ten-year-old bandit on the day before. 
That very bandit was now standing in the shadow of a storeroom. The bandit had one lip puckered, one lip shiny. The bandit was slobbering out an apology that was desperately in need of a forgiveness. But do you know what created that scene in the storage room? See, one participant in that aisle came there totally unprepared. The big man in the white apron, he was not ready for what transpired. But on the other hand, that other participant, he had gone through one monopolizing sequence of events before his arrival. Uh, the 10-year-old had faced one night of a haunting darkness where a spook named Guilt kept poking, poking his pointy finger into midnight sleep. A 10-year-old was trying to run, but he could not hide from something that was deep inside him, something he could not see, but yet was very real. He tried to forget, but he was not allowed a convenient memory loss. He tried to tell himself nothing really happened, but it wasn't very convincing. He tried to justify what he had done on the basis of what others had done. But somehow being one of many bandits did not make him any less of a bandit. So in the aisle of a dim storage room, one boy is more than prepared. One man is a little confused. And there, one young pirate learns a little bit of what it means to walk the plank. You've got to take responsibility for what you've done. When I think about that event, the little boy that stood in that shadow-crossed aisle in the storage room is, he is not a little boy anymore. As a matter of fact, he's quickly becoming an old man. And the conscience that was once Pressing a boy to tears is not nearly as naive. Occasionally, I, I wish I could go back to a place where the conscience had permission to be naive. I'd like to remove about a ton of experiences, 2,000 pounds of events that, that have twisted and distorted and calloused and disfigured what at one time was a clear conscience. Clear as crystal, could, could see right through it with no embarrassment, never had to clean it up. It shined all by itself. Unfortunately, as we grow older, we, we become very practiced at turning a deaf ear to a screaming conscience. And the more we turn a deaf ear, the more we become hard of hearing. In another passage, the Apostle Paul referred to it as a seared conscience. Like a hot iron being pressed against the raw flesh. You, you feel it in great pain for a time. But after a while, the feeling goes away. And that hot piece can be pressed against the flesh after a while when the scars form and the sensitivity is gone. There's, there's no feeling anymore. You could press a hot iron against the scar, but you wouldn't perceive it because you killed what was sensitive there. Are you feeling any of that? At one time, Onesimus' conscience is seared. He runs from the real noises that would tell him the right thing to do. But while he is running, trying to silence the voices of a haunting past, he walks through a Roman street one day, and he hears a preacher say something about putting a past behind you and finding forgiveness for the problems of yesterday. And hey, that might sound like a real familiar message to you people that sit in church all the time, but I'll tell you what, to a runaway slave, that was good preaching. Onesimus finds himself drifting toward the front row, and there he discovers what he's been running from all this time, and he decides to stop running. 
He makes himself right with God first. That is the only way that you can bring healing between people. It comes because he becomes a Christian, and this new convert, he actually begins to work as a partner in the mission ministry of Paul in Rome. I mean, how cool is that? A new convert becomes a missionary. And in the process, something important is happening to Onesimus. As he's deepening in his relationship with Christ, lo and behold, he's he starting to get some of the feeling back in his conscience again. He's actually starting to feel some of the things that God wants us to feel. Onesimus, as he's drawing himself more and more to Christ, he's starting to feel his wrong. And it's more than just a matter of thinking something is wrong. He's feeling it, and that's very important. Because I'll tell you what, if you do not feel the wrong, you will never pursue a correction to it. If you never feel the wrong that you've done to a brother, you'll never locate the opportunities of healing. That's what's different about a Christ follower. He feels his wrong. The feeling drives him towards repentance and redemption. Because he feels it, he acts out to make it right. Well, apparently one day out of the blue, Onesimus decides to tell Paul why he has these bags under his eyes. He decides to tell Paul what's been stealing his nighttime sleep. The conflict that arose between men was no big deal to him a few months ago. I mean, before Onesimus gets himself right with God, hating somebody like Philemon is just a part of the landscape. We take our anger and our hurt from some experience, we dock it in the harbor, tie it there, and we cherish that seafaring vessel as though it were a glittering yacht. We come to that angry yacht and we sail it quite often just to see how it still floats. Until one day, walking the shoreline, lingering among all those expected fixtures fixtures that float in an angry harbor, you sense that there is this storm a-brewing. It's a storm, all right. About 10 miles offshore, there's a hurricane. It's twisting and heading this way. They've been calling her Hurricane Grace. She's been stirring a tidal wave of authority that's about to change the look of the entire shoreline. 200 mile an hour, spinning winds and closing in fast. And before the warning sirens can go off, before you can ever run for cover, Hurricane Grace brings this 90-foot wall of water and it baptizes your life. Why, it even baptizes some of the stuff that you didn't want baptized. And in an instant, in an instant, you, you begin to learn an important truth the hard way, the hard way. And the truth is this, the stuff that you've collected in the harbor was never meant to survive the storm called grace. The hurricane, it's brought a whole new look to the shoreline. You stand there soaking wet water, dripping off the end of your nose, looking out where the bitter boat used to be, and you realize that you can't park those ships here no more. No place to tie it in. Docks have all been blown away. The shoreline has changed. The harbor of bitterness cannot exist once that storm called grace has rolled through. And so with bags under his eyes and a fresh shoreline in his heart, Onesimus musters up the courage to talk to the great missionary boss. And he asks for some time off. That's right, he's, he's requesting some personal time. I can almost hear the conversation. I'm making this up, but I bet it wasn't too far distant. Uh, Paul, I, uh, 
I think I need to take a little time off. Paul says, Onesimus, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to be, be taking the kids to Plato World or what? I don't know what you got going on. They're taking them to see Mount Vesuvius. I, I hear it's really bubbling this spring. No. I, I just need to go back and take care of some things. Why, Onesimus? You, you've been a good worker for me. Yeah, I know. But I need to go back. There's, there's this guy, Philemon. I feel like I need to take care of some things and make them right in Colossae. Philemon, says Paul. Of Colossae? It, wealthy guy, right? He got a wife named Atphia, an older son named Archippus. Onesimus said, yeah, that's the guy. Paul said, we're all friends! No. What a coincidence. Isn't it amazing how God can work out your deliverance when you decide to give your life into his will? God not only forgives, but he can lead you back to renew the broken places of your horizontal lives if you let him. Paul says, yep, you do. You need to go back. And I'll tell you what, I'll write the letter. Take this letter to the church at Colossae. You and Tychicus go together. Give the one to the Colossian church. And you, Onesimus, hand this letter to Philemon. And this is what the letter said. Verse 10. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in prison, in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. That's a play on words because Onesimus means useful. The word means useful. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Oh, I would have liked to keep him with me so that I could, he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might actually have him back forever. No longer as a slave, better than a slave, as a dear brother. Do you know how much distance there is between slave and brother? Listen to his words. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has done any wrong or, or owes you anything, you charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention, Philemon, that you owe me your very self. That's quite a letter. I don't know about you, but it seems to me like an awful lot of trouble to go to just for the sake of a hurt inflicted a long time ago on someone who you could probably avoid without too much difficulty. Goodness sakes, as the crow flies Colossae 1,200 miles from Rome, there's a pretty good chance that if you try real hard, you can avoid that person permanently, which leads me to wonder, 
Why would the Apostle Paul intentionally dismantle a solid ministry team? Why would he go to such extreme expenditures to play out this trip? Why does he divert the attention of the critical leadership of the Roman mission to zero in on a personal squabble between Christians in a church a thousand miles apart? Why? Well, you know why. Because the hurts of yesterday that fester in the brotherhood of believers are devastating. It's like putting on the brakes at a time when you're hoping to win the race. Onesimus, you take this lever, you get on a ship, take the next month if you need it, you get this thing fixed. The ministry of the church in Rome, in Colossae, the mission of the Lord's call upon your individual life, depend on it. You get this thing fixed. Oh, how I wish there was a Philemon chapter 2. Chapter 2, there's only one page, chapter 1. There is no chapter markings here, just one page. I wish there were a chapter 2 to detail the the journey, the the nervousness. Uh, Onesimus may be feeling like he was uncomfortable, contemplating running again. I wish I could see the look on Philemon's face when he opened the door to a runaway slave. I wish I could see their eyes meet. I wish I could watch Philemon as he was reading the words of the Apostle Paul. I wish I could listen to his wife, Apphia, because I bet she had an opinion about what was going on. I'd like to watch them scratching their heads. I wish I could see Onesimus sweating in his sandals as he stood at the threshold of the home that served as the church in Colossae. I wish I could see their face. You know what I think? I think they did just what Paul suggests in verse 21. Confident of your obedience, I write you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. I think they did what you do when brokenness finds healing. I I think they embraced, that's how I'm imagining, I think they embraced. I I know why Paul sent this letter, because healing is so powerful. It, It energizes, it's stimulated, it's empowered, it's refreshing. Healing is compelling. That's what you do when newness comes. That's what happens when there's restoration of body and spirit, cleansing of the past. You embrace. I think they embraced. Just one final note as we wrap this all up. You notice that today you and I were able to solve the problems of Onesimus and Philemon in about 30 minutes. When in reality these things develop over months and sometimes years like most things do in life. Yet as we daily pursue the Lord in our lives, we we make our progress little bites at a time. And He, capital H, capital E, He, provides the great points of victory. He can do the same for you. There's a lot involved when we decide to live Christ-like love. It is part of the mystery that opens up to us in the aftermath of hurricane grace. Oh, Kathleen. Oh, Kathleen. Just maybe. There could have been a different story. Let's bow together as we pray. Heavenly Father, we see the images of Christ-like love portrayed. And I ask, Lord, that you bring such bold things into our experience as well. Compassion and mercy, gentleness, humility, kindness. 
forgiveness. Speak powerfully to us in these moments of decision, Lord Jesus. We ask this. Amen.